This week on Missions Today. It was obviously the most crushing time of our lives. And what, what happened, brother, is previous to going to the field, when I first went on staff with the church in Escondido, I started working with disabled people at a home for people with spina bifida and cerebral palsy. And through one particular guy, really solid believer, who was trapped in a body that really didn't work, I had developed a basic theology of suffering. When I went to the Philippines, and now I'm dealing with people that, like literally, that some of the people in our church, if they had four kids and one was in the hospital, they had to make the decision, do I buy the medicine for my kid in the hospital or do I feed my other three kids dinner tonight? I mean, that level. So I had developed this theology of suffering, understanding suffering, God's purpose in letting it happen. I didn't have it all figured out, but then I faced ALS. And it was like my theology of suffering had been put to the test. And, and what do you really believe about this? Our guest this week, serving through a theology of suffering. Hi, I'm Colin Lambert, and this is Missions Today from Resource Global. This is the last of three programs looking at the topic of mission care, caring for those in the field. And it's part two of my conversation with Jeff Jackson, missionary, pastor, church planter, and more. Last week, Jeff told us about his family's time in the Philippines, moving back to the States, and this gut-wrenching diagnosis of ALS. We'll get to that in just a moment, but we pick up part two of my conversation with Jeff as he talks about some of the drawbacks and positive aspects of working with missions agencies. When I went to the field, I was sent, like I said, direct from my home church, and there were already, you know, there's already missions organizations and agencies, but I just had the sense, and in my interaction with a lot of them in those days, that although they valued the role and they, they had the verbiage of the importance of the local church, the agencies themselves seemed to, you know, almost like the church was there to help them rather than them being there to help the church. And so within the movement that I come from, Calvary Chapel, you know, which is kind of in the news lately because of the movie Jesus Revolution, and I didn't come into Calvary Chapel till 81, but my pastor was one of those hippies that got saved back in the day at the tent there in Costa Mesa. You know, they were risk takers. They were like, if the Spirit's calling, let's take a risk and, and step out in faith. And so when I got back from the field, having been so well cared for by my church, and then having gleaned from people that were with agencies that I knew on the field, and learning the upside and the downside of agencies— I'm sort of a visionary guy. My mind is an idea factory. I can't stop it. I, I just envisioned this idea of there's got to be a missions agency, a hybrid agency that does some of what agencies do, but really leaves the home church in the driver's seat with their own people. They know their people. They've seen their growth. They've been part of the calling. And, and somehow there's got to be this entity. And I looked around. I did research. I didn't see anything like that. And so I started getting it down on paper. And basically the idea, uh, the summary vision is, you know, we're here. And that's why I chose the name Facilitator. So fascinating little story. Back in the day, you know, Chuck Smith is kind of, again, because of the movie, Chuck Smith used to have a phrase at the pastor's conferences where he'd say every Calvary Chapel pastor, their passion ought to be that they would, their sheep would be the best fed, best loved sheep and healthy sheep reproduce naturally. So if you teach God's word verse by verse, you're worshiping together, a healthy local church produces healthy sheep, healthy sheep reproduce naturally. But the phrase of 
best loved, best fed sheep. As I was thinking about the vision for Shepherd Staff, what happened was I started playing around with that idea. And the idea was this, that my pastor loved me incredibly, and that love didn't stop when I went to the field. He continued to pastor me while I was on the field. So Shepherd, the name comes from this ministry is going to be a staff in the hands of a local shepherd to care for his sheep that God has called to the nations. But we're a facilitating organization. We're not going to provide the care ourselves. We're going to provide the admin, the back office stuff, and we're going to train the shepherd and his other sheep to care for the sheep God calls to the field. I call myself the, the Forrest Gump of the kingdom because I just stumble around. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I, I really don't have any education. I don't have any background, you know, no, no academic credentials, but I just kind of stumble around and God lets me meet these really incredible people. And about this time, I got to meet Don Richardson and he became a good friend. And then another guy, if you're in the missions world, another guy, Robertson McQuilkin, he wrote the original book, The Great Omission. He was a missionary in Japan for 12 years, was the president of Columbia International University in South Carolina. These guys, these two guys kind of, I think they 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 liked my energy, my youngness, the fact that I was a Calvary Chapel guy. These, these guys started pouring into me. And when I was ready to birth Shepherd Sab, both of them said, yeah, this this sounds like something that God's doing. And both of them were crucial when I was diagnosed with ALS. I have I, I've kept the letters from Robertson and from Don Richardson while they prayed for me and we corresponded and we talked. I met a couple of times at different missions conferences, but it was a Forrest Gump of the Kingdom moment that sort of led us to to get the thing started. And through Don, I met I met his son Steve at Pioneers, and Steve had me come out to Orlando. He said, "What do you want to do?" And so I shared it with him. He goes, "How can we help?" So Pioneers was crucial in the birthing of Shepherd Staff, and they always have been. Now with Denny Spitters and the other guys, they've always been encouraging for the ministry of Shepherd Staff. I've had uh, Steve Richardson on the program as well. Great guy and great ministry. I, I love your heart through this ministry and through your own life for the local church. You've mentioned it numerous times, and I think that often is something that can get left out of the missions picture. So I'm so grateful for your focus on the local church you did mention a little earlier that the care, again, that you got from your church was incredibly well cared for, as you described it. I was incredibly well cared for. But you also said there were some things that agencies did do well. What, what would you say were things that you took from agencies that were positive, that, that really were helpful to those in the field? Well, the main, the main things were, and, and again, learning this the hard way from experience with my home church, was the, sort of that back office admin component of where a local church's administrative structure is not designed to receive donors immediately. They give a once a once a year, you know, receipt. I learned that the hard way. So agencies, you know, that that mechanism of receiving and receiving donations in a timely manner is something that normally a local church is not going to be able to do. That they don't have the infrastructure to do that. So there was that side of it. Also, specialists, where the agencies, and I learned this again from my friends that were in agencies, and since then, also where. You know, 90% of what missionaries need to stay emotionally and spiritually healthy can come from their home church members if they're trained. But agencies do have access to, to specialists that have the credentials, that know how to deal with trauma, that really know how to do the depths of debriefing and those kind of things. And I think that those components are, are crucial. 
And uh, those are and and there's certain types of ministry like like no local church is going to send somebody direct to do Bible translation, or what Pioneers does. I mean, there's you're reaching an unreached people group. There there's certain things that you know agencies are just the perfect fit to do those things, and that's why God's put them there. And one of the reasons I like Pioneers is because and not all of them are this way is the idea that they don't just say with verbiage that they work with the local church, but they actually do work with the local church. And I heard a phrase from Steve that I've never forgotten. First time I'd ever heard it was from Steve Richardson, where he said, you know, your interaction with agencies previously was you, even though they had verbiage that were local church centric, we respect and regard the local church, you felt exploited rather than empowered. And I said, exactly. As a pastor, a lot of times you interact with agencies. There's this feeling of they, they're here to mine my people and my money to fulfill their vision. So there is this sense of I'm being exploited by them rather than them actually empowering us to send and care and helping us to do that well and providing the things that only they can provide. I uh, worked at Moody Radio in Chicago for 15 years, seven and a half as vice president of Moody Radio. And one of my predecessors was uh, Robert Neff, who had been in the business for many, many years. He contracted ALS right after I got to Moody and was gone within uh, just a few years. And it was an incredibly challenging thing to watch. Even in your description earlier uh, about facing this, you you were literally basically preparing to die at one point. I mean, ALS has been a death sentence. I think one of the things when people look at Christians, pastors, staff people, and certainly missionaries, they often think that, you know, because they're giving their entire lives every bit of themselves to God, that tough times don't come. You already mentioned things that happened in the Philippines, like uh, Mount Pinatubo and coups and typhoons. And here now you are back in the States. You've done all these things. You've planted churches. You've started this ministry. And oh my goodness, a, 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 a diagnosis of ALS. How did you process that? How, how did you, you and your family get through that time? It was obviously the most crushing time of our lives. And what what happened, brother, is uh, previous to going to the field, when I first went on staff with the church in Escondido, I started working with disabled people at a home for people with spina bifida and cerebral palsy. And through one particular guy, a really solid believer, who was trapped in a body that really didn't work, I had developed a basic theology of suffering. When I went to the Philippines, and now I'm dealing with people that, like, literally, the, some of the people in our church, if they had four kids and one was in the hospital, they had to make the decision, do I buy the medicine for my kid in the hospital, or do I feed my other three kids dinner tonight? I mean, that level. So I had developed this theology of suffering, understanding suffering, God's purpose in letting it happen. I didn't have it all figured out, but then I faced ALS, and it was like my theology of suffering had been put to the test. And, and what do you really believe about this? And so there was a, a moment, a, a moment where about six weeks after the diagnosis, where my wife and I spent, you know, we cried every night. Some really close friends had given us their house for the weekend up in San Clemente, if you know Southern California, beautiful San Clemente. And this house overlooked the beach. And we were just crying all night and and just praying, Lord, this is help us to walk through this in a way that honors you. The, there was just that moment where the Lord used Psalm 116 
to communicate the idea that in these moments, by the Spirit of God, we can let our spirit, empowered by his spirit, be in control instead of our souls. In other words, when a crisis moment happens, when you're suffering, when nothing is coming out the way you expected it, and really that's, in a sense, the definition of suffering. I remember Steve Saint, Nate Saint's son, at a conference on suffering years ago. Um, he was there, Johnny Erickson was there, and and Steve Saint made the point. He said, I thought about the definition of suffering, and he said, the definition of suffering, the best I can come up with is, it's the difference, the gap between expectation and reality. The distance between what you expected and what actually happened is suffering. And then he said, then it occurred to me, that's the same definition for blessing. A blessing is something that you had a certain expectation, and it happened better than you thought. And so, I, I, of course, I didn't grasp that at the time we were going through this, but that moment where the Lord showed us from Psalm 116, uh, the idea that God has been gracious to us, and soul, you're not going to be in control here. The Spirit of God, my Spirit empowered, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, I can face this through the strength that you give me in a way that would bring you glory and honor. And the key concept that came across, which I learned from my friend with cerebral palsy years before, was that the worth and the value of God are many times better declared by suffering and continuing to love him than by him acting miraculously to heal you. You can't declare somebody's worth or value and have it resonate with other people by saying what you get from them. Somebody's worth or value in your eyes is declared by what you're willing to give up to be in their presence. And, and I didn't realize this, but when I was dating my girlfriend, now my wife, and I was in the army, I saved all my money. I was writing letters and I was stationed, uh, I was going through my training at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And all my buddies were out drinking in the, in the you know, in the downtown Boston and they would spend all their money because we were living in the barracks and eating the chow hall. They'd spend all their money on pardon. I saved every dollar. So when I had a three day weekend, I could fly across country to visit Helen. And they would go, Jackson, that must be some chick out there in California that you don't go do any. And I wasn't a Christian, but you don't do any of the things that we do. You save every dollar for a $3 a minute phone call and for a trip to California. Whoever that is out there in California, she must be incredible. And I didn't know that until years later. That's what suffering, one of the benefits of suffering, which is why I now teach a course called The Gift of Suffering is to see it as a gift because the, it provides a unique opportunity to show the worth and the value of God. And so it came down to Philippians 1, where Paul says that Christ would be magnified in my life, whether by life or by death. If you want me to stay in the flesh, Lord, I want to magnify you with my life. But if you take me out of here, let my death magnify you. What was your reaction when finding out you had been misdiagnosed? How did, how did your life change? <sighs> It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it was, and most crazy is I had been working with the ALS Association because we had moved to Nevada and I was, I had begun sort of a, a, a semi-official chaplain for the ALS Association in Nevada, in Vegas, and they were going to start a clinic for ALS patients. And so they said, well, you go meet with the neurologist. And it was that neurologist that the first time he met with me and examined me, he said, I think you may have been misdiagnosed. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, clearly you have a degenerative neuromuscular disease, but your progression and what I'm seeing in you now, I need to run some more tests. 
but I think you may have this other disease called Kennedy's disease. Spinal bulbar muscular atrophy is the technical name. And it's an X chromosome, so only men get it, and it's inherited. And so he ran me through the test. I mean, and like literally, I mean, I, it's hard to explain. And that's, you know, it's like any diagnosis. When you've been diagnosed with ALS, and a number of neurologists told me, look, that's, we don't even tell people we're testing them for that. Because if you get diagnosed with that, you're done. Like there's nothing that can do for you. And it's going to be a horrible way to die. It could be less than a year. It could be five years or a little longer, but it's terrible. And so it's like, you know, you prepared yourself. You've heard that. I'm two and a half years into it. Yeah, my 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 symptoms are progressing, but really slow. And uh, and then this guy tells me this. And so now it's like, he's like, yeah, yeah we can do a blood test if the VA will approve it. Because I was getting medical care also from the VA. They did. And it came back, you know, confirmed that I have Kennedy's disease. And at that point, it was just like, and 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 brother, what what what's been so fascinating about it is, is again, in the sovereignty of God, right? And I, my theology, you know, as you grow older, your theology becomes a little, you're not as, you don't hold on to things as rich, some things as rigidly as you used to, others you hold on to tighter, and the concept of the sovereignty of God. And I'm like, look, the basic idea here is, Lord, you permitted me to be misdiagnosed. You knew I didn't have ALS, or some friends think I was healed from ALS to, um, to Kennedy's instead. I don't view it that way. I view it as God permitted me to be misdiagnosed for two and a half years. It changed every facet of my life and the life of Shepherd Staff. And he knew I was misdiagnosed and he let it happen. Well, there must be something then. There's an inventory of life experience that I needed to go through that would make me more usable for him. And so he let it happen. And then once it was the door was open, then that door opened to move to Phoenix and start ministering to refugees that had suffered incredibly, many of them Christians that had suffered because of their faith. And that that's adds a whole nother layer to my life inventory. So incredible. Thank thank you for sharing that. Cause I just think sometimes churches and pastors often sell Christianity as something that is it's all unicorns and, and rainbows. And that's not that's not the Christian life, and I thank you for sharing some of the realities of your experience. Two questions, and we'll wrap up. I do want to mention you then uh, moved back into ministry. You were you were fully back engaged again, pastoring this church for refugees. Just, I mean, we're dealing with refugees all over America right now. I live in Texas. They're you know flooding across the southern border. Not getting into the politics of it, but the people of this challenge, just a thought about the need to care for people in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and through our churches? Absolutely. And I've I've had some pretty dicey conversations with pastors and others who my interpretation is, you know, in a sense, they're more citizens of America than they are citizens of the kingdom. And as citizens of the kingdom, I think we need to have kingdom interests above everything else. And then God is intentionally letting people from around the world, whether refugees, whether legal immigrants, whether illegal immigrants, he's letting them come into our country. And it's not our responsibility to check them at the border. And so what, what I see is throughout, especially Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, God makes a big deal to his people in the Old Testament that, hey, you were, you were so, sojourners in Egypt. You were people who were oppressed. And when you get into the land, and his law includes, you better take care of the stranger and the foreigner. 
and they when they're in your midst, they can worship me. They can celebrate the Passover if they'll get circumcised. When you do your gleanings, you don't just leave it for the poor among you. You leave it for the immigrant, the sojourners, the pilgrims that live among you. And so I, I see this as an opportunity. What God is doing to fulfill his endgame purposes is he's bringing the nations into our neighborhoods. And he's doing that because he loves them. And he's put us in a unique in a sense, privileged position to, to be able to engage them when they arrive and build meaningful relationships with them as they learn to live in this new country, which is so foreign and so different to them. And when I get real pushback, you know, brother, what I, what I always say is you do realize, whoever the guy's giving me pushback, that if Egypt enforced its border laws, Jesus and his mom and dad would have never been able to flee there because they were refugees. Herod was out to get them. They were going to be put to death. God told them to go relocate to another country till it was safe. And so the Lord that you serve was a refugee, and so was his family. And all throughout his word, we are to love on those that God brings into our path, particularly those that are fleeing from oppression and, and other things. And we are to be his hands and feet. And from the missions angle, hey, you then have this opportunity to, even though you're not called to go, you can participate in the great commission of people from every tribe, people, nation, and tongue, because many of these refugees are from unengaged, unreached people groups that you could never get into their country. Well, now they live next door to you. So if you've been praying for missionaries and supporting missionaries and loving on missionaries when they're home on furlough, maybe you ought to love on the guy from Bangladesh that works at your gas station and your neighbor who's a Muslim from the Middle East. That's, that's that idea of living a sent life. Absolutely. You can do that right there at home because our, our neighborhoods are becoming uh, multinational. Just to close out, final, final question and thoughts. We've covered a lot of ground. You have such an amazing life and such an amazing story to tell. I wanted to make sure people had a chance to hear as much of it as possible. I want to go back to kind of where we began in the previous program, which is this idea of caring for those in the field and and how you experienced it yourself. Maybe for someone listening today who has a heart for missions, has a heart for missionaries, has opportunities to interact, just doesn't really know where to start the process, either individually or through their church, to care for those people. Uh, maybe just a few thoughts about, about getting started with that process. Yeah, getting started is, I, I think the first thing is to understand that that is meaningful to God. So when you look at Third John, that little short book there, and John says to Gaius, you know, he says, hey, when the missionaries of the day, when they come through your town, you host them and you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And when you send missionaries on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you're you're participating. And that's what Paul says to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter one, verses one to five. He says, you guys have been participants in the gospel from the first day I met you until now. And what happened the first day Paul was there? He was hosted at um, Lydia's house. He didn't have to spend his own money for a hotel. And so, so I would say to the person who this is a new idea, understand that when you start intentionally thinking about how to love on a missionary, you're stepping in to something that God's already approved of and, and, and basically says he honors. One of the classic moments, I think, in the New Testament for me is 1 Corinthians 16, Verse 17, where Paul says to the Corinth church, you guys have sent, you guys sent to me Stephanus, Achaicus, and Fortunatus. You know, they sent 
those three guys from their church to love on Paul while he was in prison. And he says, you sent them. They loved on me. That blessed you. And he says, you need to give recognition to people that care for missionaries. He says, you need to rec the church should recognize those that love and care on missionaries. And if I could say in one encapsulated all, if you love missionaries and you want to care for them, they, they have needs in practical areas. If they're in your area, find out something, a car you can loan them, a place for them to stay. But the key thing is, is anytime you interact with a missionary, ask them questions, show them genuine interest. When they answer your question, don't start in yourself telling them about some event from your life. Whatever they just answered, probe it a little deeper, let them talk. And if you do that, you are being a tool in the hands of God that will bring him glory and be a blessing to them. So many different ways to bless those serving in the field and to support them throughout their service abroad. My thanks to Jeff for sharing his story and some of those ideas with us over the last two weeks. Hey, be sure to check out today's podcast notes. We'll have links there for you to learn more about Jeff, the ministry he began, Shepherd Staff Mission Facilitators, and the two churches he's currently serving with in California, Calvary San Diego and Chula Vista, and Radiance International Church in San Diego, along with a link to a book about Jeff's life. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we'll hear about a woman who grew up in many places around the globe and now works to bring Christ's message of hope and salvation to all nations. It's so helpful for us if you'd subscribe to the podcast, rate it, please leave a review on iTunes. It is helpful as well. If you have feedback for me, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, clambert at missionstoday.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Missions Today Radio. Missions Today, a production of Resource Global.